Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of my new podcast. Hi, my name is Life. I'm your wonderful host, Aaron, and thank you, everybody, for stopping by, giving a listen. So, Hi, My Name is Life is a podcast about life and the unique and wonderful stories that can come out of life. You know, some of those unique stories can be happy, sad, tough, easy, triggering. So I definitely want to preface that some of these shows can be a trigger for some people who suffer from mental health or behavioral health issues, uh, gender identity, because a lot of the topics that we'll be talking about on this podcast are going to be raw um, and going to be real life. So just wanted to give a little warning about that. Today's episode might be a little triggering as I'll start kind of part one of uh, sharing my story, which is a unique story, but there's a lot of rough areas within my story. So anyways, that's kind of what the podcast and the show is what it's about. I'm hoping to get people on the show as well. Not necessarily like interviews, but more of like one-on-one conversations with people that have a unique story to tell about their life and how they perceive it and how they see it. So I already have a couple of people in mind that are totally on board with being on the show and talking about some stuff. And I'm super excited to talk to them about their life. So it's going to be a mix of talking about life, talking about pop culture, talking about video games, hobbies, mental health, a little bit of everything. So sometimes, you know, episodes are going to be hard, but there's definitely going to be some lighthearted episodes and fun and funny and everything like that. So don't worry, it's not going to be a depressing show. So anyways, let's get down to business. Let's talk about my life. It's a quite unique story. So anyways, yes, I'm a trans woman. My preferred pronouns are she and her. So back in... uh, 2015, I was an amateur professional uh, cyclist. Uh, It was my first official season in uh, road racing, which was super cool. I was racing on uh, the Audi cycling team. That whole experience was was probably enough for its own dedicated (laughs) episode. But yeah, I was getting into road racing. It was my first full season. Well, close to full season. But I think it was around May. So we're looking at May 2015. I was training for an Omnium, uh, which is a staged road race of usually it's like a road race, a crit, whatever. We're going inside baseball at this point. I was out training for that specific race, which was the weekend. So I was out training during the week and the race was over the weekend. Well, it would have been over the weekend. And it also happened to be a bike to work day as you'll find ironic (laughs) in a few seconds. But it was bike to work day. You know, I always commuted to work on my bike. And then after work, that's when I get kind of my training in. So winding down work, was riding home, getting training for, uh, because this Omnium had a crit in it. So this would have been my second crit race that I did uh, that in that season. And I'm always super nervous about crits. So I was training specifically with that intervals and stuff like that. And then as I was riding home, I was probably a few blocks away uh, from my neighborhood. 
when I was hit head on by an SUV. I've been told it was an Escalade. I was thrown from my bike about, from what I've been told, around 30 to 40 feet. And all the impact that occurred against the pavement was to my head. Thankfully, I was wearing a helmet at the time and the helmet saved my life. So always wear a helmet. Doesn't matter how far you're going, always wear a helmet. If you're skateboarding, rollerblading, roller skating, biking, scooters, wear a helmet. So I pretty much came as close to death as you could. That was a very unique experience during that because the only thing that I do remember from the accident itself was having this out-of-body experience. Now, I'm not a religious person. Uh, I don't believe in religion or anything like that. But the only thing I can remember was this kind of out-of-body experience where I was seeing myself on the ground with a bunch of people around me. People tell me that it was just kind of, you know, it's just something that my brain made up. But, you know, I was de I was giving details of like colors that I was seeing, colors of clothing that people were wearing that matched colors, you know, that matched uh, the people that were surrounding me at the time. Uh, it was super trippy. And then all of a sudden I was kind of back in the real world. So it, that that part was really, really crazy. So like this detail I've not talked about or uh, written about because I've shared my story with a few media outlets that kind of touched it. You know, this part of the story, I haven't really gave details anywhere else. So at the scene when I was getting looked over by paramedics and everything like that, the sheriff's department obviously responded to the call. They were the first responders. Uh, before the paramedics arrived. The sheriff deputy that responded to the call was, I can't say really did his job correctly. I used to know a, a handful of people that worked in law, law enforcement and, you know, kind of described them of how this sheriff deputy was handling the situation and they were kind of appalled. So I'm assuming he did a really poor job. But the deputy that responded to the call, he didn't interview anybody and there were a lot of people that witnessed the accident take place. He didn't bother. The only person that uh, this deputy interviewed or talked to is the driver who hit me. He didn't bother to talk to anybody else on the scene or anybody else who witnessed the crash or the accident. And it turned out that he let her go. Uh, you know, the driver of the SUV was a female. He let her go. No ticket was issued. No fine. No, nothing. She got away scot-free, which is disappointing, to say the least. Took my lawyer probably four to five months of constantly nagging the deputy to take action. And it ended up that the deputy finally issued a fail-to-yield infraction, which is a $100 fine. So we're talking about a woman that pretty much killed me and altered my life forever. And she got away with only a $100 ticket. You know how that goes. So anyways, back to the accident as I rant about the poor handling of the, of the scene. Uh, I was, at first, I was taken to uh, the hospital. And this, what, this is when things get a little interesting. I was taken to the hospital and, you know, got looked over 
by the ER doctors and everything like that. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't able to remember, you know, I didn't remember the date, who the president was. So like the, your standard concussion protocol, I failed miserably. I wasn't able to remember anything. So the ER doctor kind of was like, well, you just kind of have a standard, you know, a regular concussion, you know, you just kind of have to let it, you know, have to let it take its course and, you know, things will probably go back to normal and everything like that. And uh, they discharged me that evening that I was brought in. And I was definitely not in a state where I should have been discharged. I was also, I was married at the time. And my ex-wife uh, worked in medicine, worked in the medical field. And she was furious. She was, just, she was so mad that they discharged me. Because she knew, she knew that, you know, I'm not normal. Like, this is, this is way more serious than your standard concussion. But they sent me home anyways. I was a complete wreck. Couldn't stand up couldn't walk. Everything was just like complete chaos. And that was, it was pretty much a horrible evening. Uh, the next day I was experiencing, uh, extreme mood swings. You know, I would get incredibly angry one minute and then laughing hysterically the next minute crying after that. And then just being, you know, standard vegetable for the most of the time. Still wasn't able to walk, still wasn't able to keep my balance or anything like that. Memory was terrible. I couldn't remember anything. So obviously, uh, my ex-wife took me back to hospital. And luckily, we got a new doctor than uh, the one that we saw last time. And they finally were like, oh, my God, why did you get sent home? You're... <laughs> <laughs> this is absolutely terrible. What is going on? And then they finally started taking things seriously. I was admitted to the hospital. I had, you know, my brain was being monitored. Uh, I've posted pictures of the state that I was in in the hospital on my Instagram before where I was just kind of laying there like a vegetable. All that good stuff. So as it turns out, to kind of jump forward a little bit, uh, I was finally diagnosed with an actual traumatic brain injury, uh, and I was diagnosed uh, with a specific brain injury called a diffuse axonal injury. So this is one of the, the more serious TBIs, and I was very fortunate because the majority of cases, probably about 90, from what I see on Wikipedia, about 90% of patients are in a coma and never regain consciousness. So I'm incredibly fortunate that I did wake up and I did regain consciousness and I came back. And diagnosing this type of brain injury is very hard because as with majority of TBIs, it's very rare that you're able to see the amount of damage done to the brain over, you know, with CT scans or MRIs. We finally started to see actual doctors that know what they're doing and to finally get it properly diagnosed because obviously this is a huge impact on dealing with our insurance claim to the person who hit me and as well as continuing to build the case. So that's what happened in 2015. 2015 was uh, the catalyst that changed everything going forward to the rest for the rest of my life. And stemming out of this TBI, usually after two to three years, the symptoms that you are 
continuing to experience are the symptoms that you're going to continue to have for the rest of your life. And I deal with a lot of symptoms, you know, thanks to this TBI, you know, as part of the recovery process, I had to relearn how to do everything. I had to relearn how to walk, talk, function with, you know, regular household tasks, relearn how to do math, you know, I had to relearn how to do everything. Like, of course, one of the things that shocked my rehab people the most is how quickly I recovered physically. Because obviously, going into the accident, I was very in shape. And they were very shocked with how quickly I recovered physically. It's more, it's the cognitive side of things that took a long time. I lost the majority, if not all of my memory from before the accident. So... I don't remember getting married. Uh, I don't remember the birth of my child, what I did for work. So there was nothing I could really do. Of course, thanks to the injury, uh, the memories that I did keep were very traumatic experiences that happened in my life, as well as suppressed memories uh, regarding gender identity and, you know, things that I did you know, my childhood and young adult years pertaining to gender identity and stuff like that. And I since come to learn that traumatic and bad memories as well as suppressed memories are stored somewhere else in the brain, separate from good positive memories. So it turns out that bad memories and suppressed memories are stored in a well-protected area of the brain, whereas happy, good, positive memories are stored in probably the most vulnerable parts of the brain. <laughs> Which is, you know, obviously whoever designed the brain was clearly dyslexic and got the two mixed up. So it's unfortunate. Hey everyone, just a little editor drop in before this next section. I wasn't necessarily prepared to talk about what I'm about to get into, which is the primary reason why it's kind of sounding weird and off and kind of being flustered. So I just wanted to give a little note that it's going to sound a little weird just because I didn't really know how to communicate what I'm about to say. So just wanted to drop that little note. Anyways, back to the show. So, you know, I started to re memories of, you know, being molested as a child. Um, you know, being mentally abused by my father and, and obviously the memories of, you know, wearing women's clothing, having my secret backpack of girls clothes and you know going to shopping malls and stuff like that that um you know and wondering why do I have to look at the boys clothes why can't I look at these clothes over there so like all of these memories start just like floating up to the surface and at the beginning it was just like it was really hard to deal with because you know my TBI was still fresh and still recovering so I had no ability to really process the information. So having to deal with that at the same time was very much challenging. But, you know, so like a lot of the most some of the symptoms that I'm kind of 
stuck to deal with going forward is obviously, you know, the parts of the brain that are the most vulnerable when it comes to impacts to the head, be that, you know, your standard concussion or more severe TBIs, you know, are the ability, you know, emotions, judgment, impulsivity, mood, all memory, you know, good memories. These are all areas of the brain that are very vulnerable and easy to damage when it comes to uh, impacts to the head. So obviously, once you sustain a concussion or a TBI, it becomes harder to be able to control these emotions, be able to control these moods or lack of judgment and being able to control impulsivity and processing information you know, these are all things that I'm dealing with on like a daily basis, even now, you know, being, you know, five years post accident, I still, you know, are, you know, people that suffer from concussions and TBIs, we don't have those standard checks and balances that normally functioning brains have. So, you know, high anxiety situations or high stressful situations, you know, uh, a normal functioning brain has the ability to keep, you know, the emotions that come out of that in check. Whereas with us, we can stabilize it as much as we can with medication, uh, training, you know, therapy, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, for example, your partner breaks up with you. A normal functioning brain, you know, has those checks and balances of... you know, feeling emotions and feeling those feelings of sadness and everything because you're losing your partner, but it kind of like stops there. Whereas, you know, with me going through a situation like that, it's a lot harder for me to like keep my emotions under control. Whereas they'll just be like, some people will be like sad, but still go about their day. Whereas I'll be depressed and unable to do anything in your normal life. So that's been that's been a challenge and something that I've been constantly working on of getting better because obviously medication can only hand, only do so much. But yeah, it's really hard. It's not, you know, these types of injuries are not easy to handle and you know, it takes a really big toll on the people around you. And what I mean by that really is, you know, it takes a big toll on people because it's really hard for others to really understand what a lot of these symptoms mean. You know, when you tell people that it's a challenge to control your emotions and your mood, etc., you know, they're just like, oh, so you're just super emotional. No, it's like, you know, our brain is incapable of doing that. So when it's not happening in front of their face yet, you know, they're just like, oh yeah, that's fine, whatever. But yet when the situation actually arrives, uh, they're like deer in headlights because they don't understand, you know, these types of injuries, people just don't know about them, just don't understand. So when you tell them that, They're just kind of nonchalant about it of just like, yeah, sure. You know, you're emotional. Cool. No, it's, it's way different than that. (laughs) 
so that's kind of like the toll because it takes a lot of emotion. It takes a lot of mental capacity and a lot of the other person's emotion to try and deal with the symptoms that people with hand injuries uh, deal with. And not a lot of people, especially, you know, like partners and stuff like that, they don't necessarily take the time to go out and research. And I, whenever I approach any relationship, I'm always very straightforward with these challenges and difficulties and these symptoms that I have. And I always provide them with resources for them to go and learn for themselves and get a better knowledge so that when these situations do come up, they have a better or more arsenal uh, to deal with it rather than just like freaking out and running away, which typically happens uh, with people in my life because of this. It took a very large toll on my ex-wife. It was a very difficult time for her because not only having to take care of me, but also, you know, taking care of our newborn baby, you know, because our child was born in February. So it was three months before my accident. But also, you know, that aside, you know, I still have issues with retaining memories, keeping memories. Lots of times I have to write things down so I can remember. If somebody just like vocalizes information to me, I'm not going to remember it at all. It's just going to, you know, come in one ear and out the other. So that's always a struggle. If it's not written down, I'm not going to remember. Additional symptoms that I deal with, not on a daily basis, but can definitely pop up specifically in like high stress situation or uh, environments that are very high stimulation. So a lot of times I'll get, the best way I can describe it is brain locks. For anybody that's in the tech industry, uh, the best way I can describe and explain what brain locks mean is, you know, you have this database table and this table receives a ton of calls to gather information. And then all of those calls lock the data, you know, lock the database table because there's too much information coming in and it can't, doesn't have the compute power to process all of those uh, calls or all those uh, data requests. So the database just kind of freezes and stops accepting information. That's very similar when I'm in a very high stress, high anxiety situation or an environment that has a lot of uh, stimulation coming at me. If there's like a lot of data coming at me, my brain just kind of shuts down because it literally can't take that much information coming at it. So I, it kind of just shuts down. And generally, I just kind of stare off at nothing until things calm down and my brain is able to process uh, information again. That tends to happen uh, frequently, but not a whole lot because I try to keep myself away from those high stress, high anxiety situations and environments that have a lot of stimulation that would spark that symptom to show up. Also, you know, I have a tendency to stutter. This usually happens. This is usually like a precursor to my brain locking up. Uh, it's usually one of the first signs that I'm getting too much stimulation or there's too much information at me. I start stuttering my words. And another precursor to that also is like fidgeting, fidgeting with my hands, fidgeting with the rest of my body. 
all those are kind of like telling signs that my brain is becoming overstimulated. And usually when that happens, if I'm able to catch the signs early enough, I can remove myself from that situation or remove myself from that environment so I can stop the escalation of symptoms before they get worse or before they get to the point where my brain just shuts down and I'm literally just kind of like a vegetable until things calm down again. So those are things that, you know, I struggle with not on a daily basis because like I said before, I, I try my best to not put myself in situations that would allow that to happen. But those are usually common symptoms from uh, head injuries specific to mine as well. Then that's kind of the, the accident. That was the, the moment that sparked everything and sparked all of the change going forward, which I'll dive in in pro- you know, the next handful of episodes. I was, I was planning on keeping this episode central to the, my accident and the TBI that I sustained because everything after the accident is somewhat connected, not maybe not directly connected, but the accident was the catalyst for like coming out as trans, getting back into fitness and sport, making the transition from road cycling to triathlon because My doctors will never allow me to do road racing again. So I had to find another competitive outlet. So it was a catalyst for that, as well as just like dealing with life. It's, It's amazing how like one single event can affect your life in a major way. It really blows my mind. And obviously, you know, because of that, because of this event that took place, I wouldn't be who I am today at all, which is, you know, which is difficult to grasp. And it just kind of like blows your mind. Oh, I totally remember now. There's a whole nother aspect of the accident that I completely forgot to go into. I should probably dive into that real quick since we got a little bit more time for the show. I don't want to make these too long for everybody. So going outside of the recovery and everything like that, you know, we can jump into the more legality side of this accident because obviously (laughs) got to get something out of it. So, you know, hired a lawyer. We started to go after the woman who hit me for obvious reasons because medical bills were stacking up and building the case against her and quickly discovering how much of head injuries of any kind, we don't know anything about. Like going through this process of the legal side of the accident really shined a light on how inadequate, you know, the data is, the research and everything else pertaining to head injuries. You know, obviously today we might know a bit more, especially thanks to the NFL, Uh, But back in 2015, this wasn't really looked at. I mean, we still, I mean, we still have no idea how the brain works even today. But going through the legal process, we quickly were discovering that it's really, really hard to prove a brain injury. And on the legal side of it, uh, we kind of got hit a wall at some point 
because it was either stop pursuing something or taking the person to court because her insurance wasn't budging at all. The only like leeway that they gave out of everything was obviously her PIP, which is something that you have with when you have your auto insurance. If you don't have it on your auto insurance, add it immediately. Uh, but PIP is personal, what is it? Personal injury protection. So yeah, that saved a lot. So, you know, I was getting money from her PIP as well as my PIP with my auto insurance that I had. But her insurance was not going down without a very big fight. And we were quickly learning that it's really hard to prove a brain injury because you can put one doctor on the stand and say X, Y, Z. And then, you know, you could put another doctor on the stand and they'll say something completely different. Because we just don't know. I mean, like, when I first got sent to the hospital, the ER doctor just discharged me that day. And then we came back to the ER, got a different doctor, and they're like, oh my god, this is incredibly serious. We need to admit you into the hospital. So, like, you can't, you can't get a better example than that of, like, the lack of knowledge when it pertains to TBIs and any kind of brain injury. So, you know, when you're talking about like accident cases and personal injury cases, you know, obviously, you know, when you sustain a brain injury, you can't get an x-ray and show a walk up to a judge and show a judge an x-ray of like, see, my brain is broken. That's, you can't, you know, majority of brain, you know, concussions and brain injuries don't show up on x-rays, don't show up on CT scans, don't show up on MRIs. So you can't go, you can't take something that a judge can physically see and look and see the damage that has happened. You know, my lawyer said it best. He's like, he was telling me, he's like, if only you broke a bone or broke anything that we can take an x-ray of, and show that something is physically broken to show to a judge, you would have a multi-million dollar settlement. Like, they wouldn't even fight. They wouldn't even bother. They'll just see the x-ray, show something is broken, and be like, well, we don't really have a case to fight here. Here's the money. (laughs) So lucky me, I didn't break any bones. In fact, I didn't really sustain any scratches or like I had like very, very minor bruising. Like my cycling kit wasn't even torn for crying out loud. That shows that I was literally a pogo stick, you know, my head being a pogo stick across the pavement. So we got to the point where, look, they're not budging and they're not really negotiating. They're not bringing anything to the table because they think they have a shot, you know, if we decide to go to court. You know, they think they have a viable chance of winning. So it got to the point where it was either I kind of just like give up or we go down the court path. Me and my lawyer had a really long discussion about the options between the two, because obviously if we decide to go to court, it's going to be very difficult to fight uh, for my side because you can't necessarily prove that somebody has a brain injury even know everything, all the symptoms and issues that I've had since the accident I didn't have before. 
because you know I never had anxiety issues. I never had. I didn't have depression. I didn't have the problem of the inability to control everything. You know, I wasn't suicidal. You know, I didn't have any of the problems that I have that I deal with now uh, prior to the accident. But on when the opposition was looking over uh, my medical records, because obviously you have to submit medical records to them, I had one doctor from like. 2006 or something that mistakenly coded a visit wrong and coded it as mild depression instead of just like fatigue because I went to the doctor saying that I had really low energy. They mistakenly coded it as, you know, mental health or a mild depression instead of just general fatigue. Thanks to that one doctor from 2006 miscoding a diagnosis, all of a sudden they can easily go to a judge, show that medical record and be like, oh, see, they had prior evidence of having issues with depression. So fuck you, doctor. But anyways, my lawyer was telling me, he's like, all right, if we go down, if we go down the path of going to trial, he's like, this is probably, you know, this isn't going to be a quick trial. This is going to be probably you know, drawn out to, we're looking at two, three year case and we'll be, you know, consuming a lot of the lives surrounding. So like a lot of family members, you know, obviously would have to be part of it because, you know, giving testimony of how I was before and after. So it'd be consuming a lot of people's time as well as, you know, trying to get, you know, doctors, you know, it's a huge commitment for not only just me, not only for just my lawyer, but a very large commitment from everybody surrounding me. All for, you know, to ask that much from people for something that has a a high probability of either, you know, like a no decision, losing or whatever. You know, my lawyer is like, you know, I still think that we have a case and we could probably win. You know, it's just going to take a long time to prove it because we don't have that physical uh, exam that shows something that's broken. God, I wish I broke a goddamn bone. (laughs) That would have made so much. That would make everything easier. But I didn't. So I had to think about that long and hard. And obviously with my ex-wife and stuff like that of what we should do. And I made the decision of, you know, not pursuing uh, trial against the person, even though I really wanted to, because if I was, you know, because of what this person did to me, it changed, altered my life forever. I, you know, I'm not the same person that I was before 2015. I can't go back to my job, you know, and I was, I had a job that paid very, very well. You know, I'm on disability now and not making anywhere near of how much I was. And, you know, dealing with disability, that's a whole nother freaking episode. Um, You know, she changed my life forever and she got away scot-free. You know, she could go, she could go and do, you know, live her life normally. She can go be with her family like nothing ever happened. She only had to pay $100. I mean, obviously her insurance paid a hell of a lot more than that, 
but like as consequences to what she did and what she did to me, she only had to pay a hundred dollar fine, a fail to yield ticket. Yeah, as you can tell, I am still really pissed off about that. I am still really pissed off about that because she gets to live her life normally. She only had to pay a hundred dollars. Whereas my life, God, man, she took away all of my most cherished, loved, happiest memories from my life. She single-handedly deleted the memory of the birth of my child. She deleted the memory of getting married to the love of my life. Her decision to wanting to take a few seconds off her commute took away everything that I cherish the most. I can't get those memories back. She took away my livelihood, my job, being able to have normal relationships with people, having a functioning brain that works. This is what was taken from me because she wanted to shave off a couple of seconds from her commute. And, you know, my life changed, you know, not all, not all for the bad, but like it altered my life for until I die. How's that fair? It sucks. It sucks really bad. And I'm, you know, even to this day, five years after the accident, that just infuriates me. It just, I don't know if I'll ever be able to get over that. I was in it for so long of just wanting to make her pay, wanting her life to be just as altered as mine. Like, I shouldn't be the only one that is affected by what happened. Like, she should be feeling the, the pain and the struggle of dealing with hitting somebody head on with their car. And an Escalade is not a small car. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was hoping not to <laughs> end the show on such a downer. But, yeah, that pisses, yeah, that pisses me off. But, you know, you move on regardless of how hard it is. You still have to pick yourself up. You still have to, you know, dust yourself off and find that motivation and find that drive. But if there's something that you can take away from this kind of conversation, this kind of story is, I always tell people that the best way to back up your memories is to take lots of photos and take lots of videos. Because like me, once those memories are gone, they're gone. There's no, there's no getting them back. There is no backup. There is no, you know, restore memory 1153 from <laughs> backup tape 04. Like once those memories are gone, they're gone. So yeah, I just keep telling people, take lots of photos, take lots of videos, you know, because once your brain loses them, they're not coming back. So best things that I could tell you folks, always wear a helmet, take lots of photos, take lots of video and live life to its fullest. Anywho, that's about wrap it up. Thank you so much, everybody, for downloading and listening to the show. 
again. It's my first episode, first podcast. If you would like to engage in my hashtag content, ask any questions about what we've talked about, maybe some feedback, maybe some just general comments, feel free to send an email to podcast at hi, my name is Aaron dot com. And that's Aaron spelled out as E-R-I-N. Feel free to follow the show on Twitter. I think the handle is hi, my name is underscore life. So until then, I'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening.